I want to invite you to open your Bible to the New Testament book written by the Apostle Paul towards the end of your New Testament, 2 Timothy or 2 Timothy as we call it. Two things. Number one, I want to thank all those working in our nursery this morning. When we have a one-service thing, uh, those that work in the nursery obviously cannot be here in the auditorium, and so we always want to make sure we are extra thankful for our nursery workers making it possible, serving us in that capacity, uh, that we can sit in here, and they are taking care of loving and discipling our little ones. Secondly, speaking of little ones, Becky and I have the privilege starting on January 12th for six consecutive Wednesday nights, we're going to be teaching a class on parenting. And um, space is limited, it's getting close to full, but if you are interested, get a hold of the church office, we'd love to have you in there. And we are very much looking forward to uh, having this opportunity, 6.45 on Wednesday nights starting January 12th here on the campus. Let's pray. Father, you have given us a book, a book that people scorn, downplay, mock, make fun of, ignore, water down, but book we want to take seriously. The evidence is overwhelming. This is a revelation given from heaven, meant to be taken seriously, literally, faithfully, and obeyed. The key to eternal life and showing us the path to heaven and joy and satisfaction and impact. Help us to understand, prepare us as we enter a new year to take you seriously. And we pray all of this in Jesus' good name. Amen. As we prepare to enter a new year, I was thinking about what to preach on. It is a good time to talk about priorities, especially at the beginning of a new year. Always a good time to focus on priorities. And so this morning, I want to turn to this unique book that Apostle Paul wrote and talk about if you are a true follower of Jesus here this morning, I know not everyone is, but if you know Christ, and I know a lot of us do, and you're born again, I want to talk about one of the most important priorities in your life, and that is faithfulness to the Word of God, loving the Word of God, and one of the most critical priorities for, a new, for, for any Christian, especially a new Christian, but all of us, is consistent intake of God's Word. God's Word is a top priority in a new year, sitting under the preaching of the Word regularly, reading God's Word, meditating on God's Word, memorizing God's Word, seeking to obey God's Word. I have very clear memories of my grandmother on my dad's side, Grandma Minnie, and she lived to be 93, but one of the memories I have of Grandma Minnie is her Bible, an old Schofield reference Bible, all marked up. She had eight children. She was widowed at the age of 51. She ended up with 32 grandkids, 58 great-grandkids, most of that on her own after her husband died early on, and she was a woman of the book, and that made an impact. As I would see her, or as I would see her Bible and open it and see it all marked up as a teenager. Here's our theme this morning, that God's primary way of speaking, feeding, protecting, and leading His people is through the pages of this book that were 
the Bible speaks, God speaks most clearly. That these inspired sentences, words, grammar in Scripture are His final authoritative word to the world. And that the Bible has priority over, it does not completely replace, but it has priority over dreams, promptings, nudges, visions, or prophetic words. That's, that's the, it, Bible's full of visions, the New Testament's full of dreams. I've talked to many saints who have dreams from God and I believe are legitimate. The point is, what's the final arbitrator of truth? And this morning, I want to go to the scriptures that declare the final arbitrator of truth is the Word of God and that a Bible, I'm going to use the phrase, Bible-saturated life is the key to spiritual health lasting joy in finishing the race well. And so we turn to 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. Paul gives us two reasons why the Bible must be a top priority in the life of every single person who claims to be a born-again Christian. Number one, because of the origin of God's Word, and number two, because of the power of God's Word. So we're going to dive into this. I'm going to move at a, what I like to call a crisp clip. We're going to move fast, but there's a lot here. And my prayer has been, as I've been working on this, is that this would, given all of us, especially those of us who know Christ, a deeper hunger to leave here today and make God's Word a top priority in our life this year. 2 Timothy 3.16, I'm going to read just the first phrase. As we begin, I'm going to unpack this phrase by phrase. So, The Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this, All Scripture, and the word Scripture there in the Greek text is the same word used throughout the New Testament to refer to the Old Testament, graphe. I think you can even recognize probably an English equivalent. All Scripture is God-breathed. Let's pause right there. Depending on what English translation you have, Either it says God breathed or breathed out by God. Some of the older translations say inspired. What's interesting is that phrase, and it's hyphenated in the NIV, which I'm using here, God breathed. That word is used only one time in the entire Bible. It's used only one time in the New Testament. It's only used one time in the whole Bible. It's a word not found in classical Greek. It is a word not found in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. It's found nowhere else. It looks like Paul took two words, one for God and one for breath, and just put them together, which is very legitimate since the Holy Spirit was leading him, to come up with this word, God breathe. In other words, Paul is telling us this, young people, hear this, that the Bible comes from the mouth of God. It is breathed out from God, has its origin in Him. The Bible does not put an emphasis on impressions or thoughts. It puts an emphasis on what is written. It's very interesting. It's not the writers that were inspired. It is what they wrote down that is inspired in Aramaic and in Greek and in Hebrew. It is the final product in the original language that the Bible refers to as that which is breathed out by God. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 4. It is written... Man shall not live by bread alone, which a lot of us have probably been eating a lot of over the holidays, but on every, what, word that comes from the mouth of God. That means the Bible is his final disclosure, his final word, his final statement 
about the universe and himself. Every syllable, every stroke of a letter, every word, every verse, every chapter, every book is breathed out by God, and that is why the Bible puts such a huge emphasis on the origin of Scripture as the words of God. Interestingly, more than 3,000 times in the Bible, you come across these kinds of phrases, thus says the Lord. Every once in a while when I was a dad, sometimes and I was trying to get rid of attention, I'd be like, thus says dad. Didn't have quite the authority. Thus says the Lord. This comes out constantly. Or the word of the, of the Lord came to so-and-so. Or God said. The bottom line is that when the scriptures are said to be God-breathed, it means that God communicates in human language. If you know anything about the academy and the trends of higher education, even in liberal seminaries, you know that there is a strong trend to downplay that God speaks in human language as if he's not able. It's insanity. But he does. I love the way Australian New Testament scholar Mark Thompson puts it. Quote, God has something to say and he's very good at it. <laughs> he's not hindered in what he has to say. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 24, 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my impressions won't. My words will not pass away. And the point is, we have a God who speaks. That makes the God of the Bible very different from the God of other religions, especially Eastern religions who have a very impersonal view of God. We have a God who speaks and is spoken in the Bible. And again, it means that the biblical word, the words in Scripture take precedence over. They don't completely annihilate, but they take precedence over nudges, impressions, or dreams. That's why in Deuteronomy 18.18, 18, I will raise up for them a prophet and I will put my words, see how much emphasis the Bible puts on words, in his mouth. Or 2 Peter 1.21. Listen to the wording. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so this is why you have the reformers and others using a Latin phrase. Norma, Normans, non normata. What the world does that mean? It means the norm of norms that cannot be normed. The Bible is the final norm. Now, a lot of the, some of you know that the reformers, Zwingli and Calvin and Luther and all the others, spoke of sola scriptura. Sola scriptura is not solo scriptura. There's a difference. It's not that this is the only thing we look to. We look to the church fathers. We have councils, we have declarations, we have creeds we recite, Nicene or apostles. We have the writings of the early fathers, we have the writings of the Puritans. We have, God gives the gift of teaching to the church. What sola scriptura means is not solo scriptura. It means sola scriptura. This is the final norm that norms all other norms. So if I have a dream, if I have a vision, if I have a nudge, or as I hear a lot of Christians say somewhat casually sometimes, perhaps too casually, God told me this, God told me that, God said this, God said that. I'm not saying he didn't. As long as we're taking all of that and going back and asking this one question, 
what does the text say? Does my dream line up with something God says? Does my prompting line up with something God has said? Does my nudging line up with something that is very clearly revealed in the print of the Scripture? Now, as you're back in your text here, I want to show you something. We need to see a very direct link here between cause and effect. Because God is a speaking God, back to verse 16, and has revealed Himself primarily beyond Jesus and His Son, through Scripture, language, words, and grammar, it's important to see that verse 316 leads directly to verse 4-2. It is a very clear cause and effect. All Scripture is God-breathed. Now drop down to verse 4-2. This is Paul giving instruction to a young pastor in Ephesus. Therefore, preach the Word. 316 leads directly to 4-2. Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Why? Because the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. I think we might be there. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers. He's not just speaking of false religions here. He's speaking of those who claim to speak for God, who stand up in churches or at synagogue and say things that are clearly just nutso. Okay, that's a Hebrew phrase that means off base. Not, nutso. Ancient word. They will turn away from the truth and turn aside to myths. There's a lot of myths going on today. In popular print, radio, and TV, that comes across as the Word of God, but it's not. Let's step back for a second, give you just a little bit of a reminder. Here's a reminder, historically, about world religions. When you look at the religions that are monotheistic, meaning a belief in an all-powerful, supreme, creator, personal God, and there's only three of those religions, Judaism, Christianity, Islam. All three of those religions believe that God spoke in a book. Now, we don't believe in the historicity or the inspiration of the Quran, obviously. But it is a significant event that monotheism leads to a speaking God. That's the point. It leads to then some kind of public preaching. So Becky and I have been in mosques. I don't believe what they're saying. I think it's off base. I don't believe in the inerrancy or infallibility of the Quran at all. But it's interesting that because Islam believes that God who speaks, he has a book, and therefore we declare, same with Jews in the Torah, same with Christians. You don't see that in Eastern religions. Why? Because they don't believe in a personal God, and that impersonal God certainly is not a speaking God. So Eastern religions with an impersonal view of God, you know how they have, they don't have anything like preaching. If you walk into a Hindu temple, I've been in many, If you walk into a Buddhist temple, a Confucian temple, a Shinto temple, a Jain temple, you will not hear preaching. You'll hear music, you'll hear chanting, you'll hear all kinds of stuff. You'll see very sincere, precious people, but you will not hear anything like declarative preaching, ever, because there is no final word from God to be heralded to the people. That's it. That's why monotheism leads to preaching. That's why 3.16 here leads directly to verse 4.2. By the way, the word translated in chapter 4, verse 2, preach the word is a word. The Greek word means to, to declare publicly. It is not the word teach. It's not saying teach the word. 
although that is a biblical command, but that's not what this word is. And it's not explain the word. This is the closest equivalent here is the town crier. Hear ye, hear ye. That's, it's, it's declarative. It's declaration of a royal message, a royal proclamation. And that is why in the Reformation, 500 years ago, both the Continental Reformation and the English Reformation, the pulpit, this thing, took precedence again and was brought back to the middle. Prior to that, the pulpit had evolved over and moved over to the side. The altar took place. The sacrament took center stage. But during the Reformation, when the emphasis was on the Word of God, the pulpit came back to center stage again, recognizing that's primarily what we need. Not that the sacrament is not important, but what is center stage is the, exp- is the ex- uh, expulsion. expulsion. They had been expelled. The exposition, the expounding of, the declaration of the Word of God. And throughout history, love to read history, when you look at the great revivals, the great renewals, the great missionary outreaches, all of them have something in common at their core. You know what that is? They were all centered around Bible-centered declaration of some level. And often it was preaching. In the first few centuries, you had men like Athanasius or Tertullian or St. Augustine or John Chrysostom, the great preacher of Istanbul that Haggai Sophia was built for. Have you ever been in the Haggai Sophia in Istanbul? Wow! What a place. Now today... It's a museum, it has been a mosque, but it was originally built as a church around 500 A.D. And John Chrysostom preached there and heralded the scriptures from there. During the Reformation, if you move forward in history, again, the great movements of God have been anchored in preaching. John Calvin, Martin Luther, John Knox, William Tyndale. What were they known for? Preaching. What did Jesus say he came for? He came preaching. During the Great Awakening, move forward further. What stirred the colonies? What stirred the the British people? It was George Whitfield, John Wesley, Jonathan Edwards. On and on it went with the preaching of God's word. You move forward from that. Preaching fueled great revival movements. D.L. Moody, A.B. Simpson, Charles Spurgeon. The list goes on and on. Today you can come up with men like Tony Evans. John MacArthur, Vody Bauckham, John Piper, the list goes on and on and on. The point is, all great movements of God, renewals, revivals, missionary outreach, have at their core the preaching of God's Word. And that means where the Scriptures speak, hear this, young people, hear this. Where the Scriptures speaks, God speaks. And where God speaks, And where God's word is declared, there is light and life in a congregation. Who can forget Dean Kelly's book? Back in the 1970s, I still have it in my library. Still have it in my library. Why conservative churches are growing. Dean Kelly was on the board for the ACLU. He was not a conservative, theologically or politically, He was a member of the National Council of Churches. He was a theological and a political liberal. But he wanted to assess this trend that he saw, which was the emptying of the mainline churches and this crazy growth of conservative churches. And so he wrote this book 
as a sociologist trying to figure out why are conservative churches growing? Well, it was not a difficult answer. He took a lot of analysis, but the bottom line was this, because they preach the Word of God, and the others don't. The denomination I grew up in did not faithfully preach the Word of God, and it has emptied out. Where the Scriptures are preached and not downplayed and not treated lightly and blithely, there is light in life where God's Word is declared. Churches that sideline the scriptures, or soften biblical preaching will stall and stagnate and decay and decline. It's inevitable. It has everything to do with whether you anchor yourself in the word of God. Ladies and gentlemen, young people, boys and girls, where the scriptures are held up and preached faithfully every Sabbath, God's glory and greatness are rejoiced in. That's the point. That brings us, secondly and lastly, to the last part of today. We have the origin of God's Word, now the power of God's Word. Paul is going to unpack this, the rest of verse 16 and 17. So he says, all Scripture is God-breathed, that's the origin of God's Word, and therefore is useful, notice for what? Teaching, rebuking, correcting, Training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The NIV uses the word useful. King James uses the word profitable. But because scriptures God breathed, it is, it is profitable. That means it has the power to do something. That's the point. It speaks to the power of God's word in our lives. And yet here's the here, here's sad part. As, as a pastor, how many I see and talk with who claim to be part of God's people who, who barely spend time in this book? The distractions are legion around us. Electronic distractions, social media, TV, internet. It goes on and on and on and on. And the point is we get distracted from this or we're hit and miss in our church attendance and spend little to no time reading on our own or sitting under the preaching, and then we wonder, well, why isn't the power of God being released in my life, in my marriage, in my family? Well, the answer is, and the more I drift away from this book, the more God's power is going to evaporate. And the more I don't spend time in this book, the more I ignore it, the more God's power is going to slip away. I like to quote, Charlie every so often up here, Charlie Spurgeon. I came across one of his quotes recently out of his, one of his sermons. It's a little bit tart, but he says it this way. There is enough dust on some of your Bibles to write the word damnation with your own fingers. <laughs> wow. I didn't say it. Chuck said it. And that was a man who loved the word of God. Paul says scripture is profitable. That means it's useful. And the reason it's so useful goes back to 316. Again, 316 flows right into why it's so useful. That flows right into verse chapter 4, verse 2, to preach the word. Hebrews 4.12. Listen to how Hebrews 4.12 puts it. The word of God is alive and powerful. Now, I want, to, I, want to, I want to encourage you pastorally. Listen to this for just a minute. Because this book, friends, has power 
has the power of God in it. It has the power then to break the bondage of destructive habits. It does. It has the power to help us break the, the, the iron clasp grasp of besetting sins. That doesn't mean they're going to disappear overnight, but over time and over a lifespan of sanctification, as I spend time in this book and the Holy Spirit is operative in me, the God, God's Word has the power to help me set aside and break through besetting sins, destructive habits, and selfish patterns. Because this book has power, it has the power to heal us from broken relationships, broken marriages, abusive past, and a lying tongue. Because this book has power, it has the power to deliver us from sinful choices, bondage to anger, bondage to alcohol, and the grip of pornography that is choking the church. And it has the power to lead us into joy, peace of mind, stillness of soul, and peace with God. That's why it's Theologians have a phrase called the sufficiency of Scripture. Meaning what? That the Word of God is designed and will carry out exactly what God intended for it. It will be utterly sufficient for what He designed it to be. Two other verses. Isaiah 55, 11. God says, hear this, My Word, which goes forth from my mouth, will not return to me empty. Or let this one put some zip in your step. Jeremiah 23, 29. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces. You want to talk about a verse. Young people, teens. You want to talk about a verse that is filled with encouragement and hope about the power of God's word in your life, the similes here are a rock and a fire, the power of God's word. And it's powerful. It has the power to change hard hearts and break them. It has the power to invade and heal broken lives, failing marriages, bondage to sin. It has the power to soften, humble, and convert the most rebellious sinners on our planet. And it has the power to feed God's people, encourage God's people. Some of us here this morning need a big dose of hope. We're barely hanging on. And it has the power to infuse us with gospel promises. It has the power to calm us, correct us, instruct us and comfort us and feed us and guide us. And that's why Martin Luther, the great reformer, 500 years ago, read his Bible through twice a year on average. And it's why the great missionary Jonathan Goforth, who himself was a preacher, Went to China, read his Bible so faithfully. Let me tell you a little bit about Jonathan Goforth. He has a great name as a missionary, right? Goforth. That was, that was actually his name. Jonathan and his wife Rosalind faced the frequent and painful illnesses of their family. They endured long separations. They suffered through the death of five of their 11 children. They, they, they lost three one-year-olds. They lost a two-year-old. And they lost a seven-year-old daughter. And that they never, ever said, oh, God has turned against me. And on two different occasions, they lost all of their possessions to flood and fire. And by the time Jonathan Goforth died at the age of 75, he was still preaching, he was blind, and he had read his Bible through 70 times. 70 times. Is it any great mystery why Jonathan Goforth had such a God-ordained ministry? 
All right, summons. Got to land this airplane. Ready? Two summons this morning. Number one, if you claim to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, if you don't, I guess I would add a pre-summons, and that is until you are reconciled to God and have been born again, you're not ready to receive his word. And so my urging this morning is if you don't know Christ as Savior, if you've not been born again, if you have no clue what I'm talking about, I'm not talking about being religious or being on a church membership role. I'm talking about an encounter with the living God that brings us to our knees in confession of sin and crying out to Jesus as our only hope and Savior. That is the only way a sinful human being, boy, girl, teenager, or adult can stand before God someday and inherit eternal life. You must be born again. Are you born again? That's, that's all preface. Now here's my two challenges this morning. If we claim to know Christ, ladies and gentlemen, as we go into a new year, this book needs to be top priority in my life. And it begins with a commitment. Hear this. First of all, to regularly sit under the preaching of God's Word in a Bible-teaching church. I know some of you don't attend here regularly, and some of you are visiting and from other places. That's not the point. I'm not here to try to pump our church per se. But it's very important to regularly be in a Bible-teaching church. People that say, oh, I follow Jesus, but I don't need to be regular in church. You're not reading your Bible. Because Jesus says, I'm going to build my church, and he calls the church his bride. And anyone with a robust ecclesiology or doctrine of the church knows that to follow Christ is to be in a local church and be committed. It's an oxymoron and contradiction to say, I'm going to follow Jesus, but I don't need to be regular in church. That's disobedience. To regularly sit under the preaching of God's word, and then a commitment to not only sit under the preaching of God's word, but to read it and study it on a regular basis. Donald Gray Barnhouse used to quip, he used to say that, you know, when most people say they're thinking and studying, all they're doing is rearranging their prejudices. Something worth chewing on. When most people say they're thinking and studying, they're just rearranging their prejudices. To go to the text and let this book speak to me and change my patterns, my thinking, and my reactions in life. And let me say a word about devotionals here. I use devotionals, meaning small little, like daily bread, or what comes out from Moody, or what comes out from Ligonier, table talk. These are helpful tools. They are tools. They should not replace time in Scripture. If you're going to pick one or the other, throw the devotional away and stay in the book. Don't just use devotionals yourself. Don't just use them with your family. Make sure they, they are frosting. There's a good analysis. They're frosting. I like frosting. It's good, especially with cream cheese and vanilla in it. That's good. I like that. But it's frosting. I don't live on the frosting. I live on what is below the frosting. Well, cake, I don't live on it either, but <laughs> have been. But the point is, it's augmentation. If, if, if you primarily rely just on a devotional, I would urge you in strong words, don't. Use it as an augment. This is the primary take. Bible says in 1 John 2 then, I am to obey then what I am reading, making this my top priority. John says, whoever says, well, I know Jesus, but is not doing what he commands is a liar. 
I didn't come up with that. That's a strong word. So if you say, yeah, I know Christ, but then you look at the person's life. They've not been baptized. They're not regular in a church. They don't take God's word seriously. They're messing around with sexual immorality or they're addicted to substance abuse, or they're messing around with pornography, or they're holding grudges and they're bitter, or the list goes on and on and on and on. I know my own wretched heart. If I am not battling in my sanctification, progressing in my holiness, doesn't mean I'm perfect by any means. That's not what we're saying. It just means, this means the person who's not even making an effort. Whoever says, I know him, but is not doing what he commands in the present tense, is a liar. The truth is not in that person. That needs to hit me. That needs to hit us. Second and final summons this morning. And here I'm talking to moms and dads and grandparents, aunts and uncles. We must be reading and teaching the scriptures to our children. One of the things Becky and I are going to emphasize in our class is the importance of getting the scriptures into our family and some ways how to do this. Remember, you're an example. Your kids watch you like a hawk, and your grandkids, nieces and nephews, are watching your patterns. question is, what are they seeing? What are they seeing? Do they see a hunger and a thirst for Scripture? Do they see a, a mom and a dad, an aunt and uncle, grandpa and grandma in Scripture? We need to be opening this book. We need to be reading it at the dinner table or the breakfast table, somewhere along the line. We also need to make sure that our kids are in worship, and in Awana, and in youth group. Why? Because, hear this, getting our families into the Scripture is the most important step we can take to raise a godly family. That's the bottom line. So I close with one of my favorite verses about Scripture. Hear this, church, Isaiah 55, 11. My word that goes out from my mouth will not return to me empty, but will accomplish exactly what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. May that be our gospel promise today and our hope as we leave here and start a new year shortly. Make this book top priority. Father, we can do nothing better than to pray And repeat what Jesus said in his prayer in John 17. Your word is truth. And so we pray for churches in our area here that they would stay faithful to truth. And that the ones that are, you would bless and grow in depth and in numbers and impact. We pray that for our church, that we would be faithful to the scriptures. Thank you for our Sunday school teachers nursery workers, youth workers, children's workers, those that fill this pulpit. Thank you for using Pastor Marty recently so faithfully that this is a church committed to the Word of God. Thank you for your hand of blessing and protection as such. Hear us as we raise our voices. And again, we pray you might open more blinded eyes here today, Father, and we might see some new conversions and new baptisms this coming year. In Christ's name, amen.